afternoon, everybody, and thank you for being here. And what I'm presenting today is a paper I'm working on, and the title is slightly different from what I submitted for the seminar. Um, so I'll be discussing the role of class in transnational exchanges between Canadian migrants in the UK and their relatives in Ghana. So by transnational exchanges or transnational transfers, I mean transfers that move from the migrants to their origin areas, and then also the ones that move from the origin areas to the migrants in the destination area. So there is a reverse return in them, but I'm taking a more holistic approach to this. So by of outline, introduction, theory, methods, finding, and then conclusion. Um, since the turn of the century, there has been increased attention on remittances, um, particularly in the context of south to north migration, to the neglect of other forms of transnational exchanges between migrants and their relatives. Um, this attention reached crescendo where the world war jumped on the bandwagon with the Democrats' chapter in the Global Development Annual Finance Report in 2003, where he argues that if remittances are harnessed properly, they can become the new source of development finance for developing countries. Um, this led some scholars like David Kapoor to question whether remittances were the new development mantra. Um, indeed, a common theme motivating much of the research on remittances is that if they can be better understood, they can be shown to promote development on their own, or they can be sort of um, geared into productive investment by wise policies. So these sentiments um, underline papers by scholars like Elsaka and McNam in 1999, and others in 2002, and then Giuliano and Bizarat in 2009. Um, in the context of South to North migration, the assumption is that once the migrant has moved from a developing country to a developed one, that migrant sent remittances home. Um, so then according to the World Bank, remittances reached 4 to be 2 billion in 2015. However, not all migrants send remittances, and part of the explanation for this is class, which I hope to highlight. Um, the emphasis on remittances also stems from the conceptualization of migration in developing country context um, by the NDLM's theorization, where they conceptualize that migration from developing countries because migrants want to move to diversify their sources of income. Um, in the African context, the emphasis is on the migration of economic or labor migrants, refugees, and then their sort of engagement with the origin country. Um, in as much as this holds true for sections of the population, it is not always the case. Um, in as much as poorer people migrate, relatively wealthy people also migrate, but their narratives are missing in the literature. And when we talk about the migration of relatively well-to-do Africans, it is looked at in the context of brain drain or high school migration, <coughs> and then its socioeconomic effect on the developing countries. So this paper calls for a stronger role of class analysis in exchanges between migrants and their relatives. And the tremendous attention on remittances also portrays relatives of migrants in origin areas, largely as passive recipients of remittances, which is not the case. And migrant relatives take on um, extra responsibilities in the absence of the migrant. So they take care of migrants' children, um, run errands for migrants, migrant businesses, building projects, etc. So scholars like Valentina Manzukato have argued that these services that relatives of migrants perform for migrants should be protected from remittances. Um, so this paper is a critique against the remittance literature and theorization in the context of global south to north migration bringing into the equation not only just remittances, but also transfers that comes from relatives of migrants to the origin areas. Um, 
So the question driving the analysis in this paper is what is the role of class and transnational issues between migrants and their relatives. To understand the role of class, I draw on Pierre Boudou's conceptualization of the concept, where he defines class as the disposal of different forms of capital to an individual. So we have economic, cultural, and social capital. Um, economic capital is perceived as the grasp of finances or a person's assets, properties, etc. Cultural capital is a person's skill sets or proficiencies. You know, to some extent, educational qualification also falls under the bracket of cultural remittances. And the social capital is the aggregate of the actual or potential resources, which leads to the possession of a durable network. Um, the various forms of capital that individuals have make it possible for them to achieve a desired goal. So, um, for example, if you want to achieve your dream job, you can get it by relying on your cultural capital, for example, or you know someone who knows someone, and I like to say, who knows you? So then you are able to achieve your desired results, drawing on your various forms of capital. And um, you notes that the various forms of capital were unevenly distributed so that two individuals who have equivalent overall capital can differ in that one has a lot more, say, economic capital than cultural capital, or more social capital than um, economic capital. Um, so according to him, these forms of capital can be transformed to meet the needs of individuals who draw on it. And so this feature of his notion of capital, that it can be accumulated, transferred, and converted, is most useful for migration studies. Um, largely because it helps to explain how someone with say little economic capital can still be able to migrate because he or she has social networks or social capital to draw on. Um, despite consensus in the migration literature that um, resources are crucial for the migration endeavor, very few migration scholars have looked at the role of class in um, social processes in migration. I will put a few assumptions. So Nick right here looks at the role of class in migration 2014. We have Akla and we have Maria P. Lawrence Valera for IMI. Um, so I'll look at Maria's article later on. But um, but then she looks at the role of class in migrant entrepreneurship. So she does this among Latin American migrants in Spain. Um, Arthur, who looks at African migration, the role of class in African migration, argues that African migrants who are domiciled outside the continent comes from societies that are principally structured along a broad range of stratification variables and internal depreciations. And these affect their access to social mobility, resources, life chances, and the structural opportunities. Um, Vanier shows that it's not likely, it is not likely accepted as migration is not. Um, for the poorest of the poor, but it's engaged by those who can move like some level of resources. And it makes the case that as migration policies of more, as migration policies of desirable destinations have become more stringent, what determines the ability to reach these destinations are a person's capital. Um, so that it follows that access to more prosperous and desirable destinations is limited to better resource migrants. International migration requires the accumulation or possession of amounts of economic, social, cultural, and other forms of capital. 
Um, but the role of class in migration doesn't end when the migrant has arrived at his or her destination. Um, it is interwoven throughout their experiences and existence in the host society. Resources and connections that people have determine their social cycle, determine their access to the labor market. Um, so Maria Glantz, Valera's article, I used that. So her article was sort of debunking previous research that looked at the role of children in migrant businesses. And many of these research argued that children help their relatives in migration because of reciprocal norms. And she argues that that's not always the case. And that depending on whether parents or business owners feel that the business would lead to upward mobility, they would encourage their children to partake in the business and learn the tricks of the trade. Or if it's going to lead to downward mobility, they discourage their children from helping in the business. Then they encourage them to they encourage them to pursue other interests. Um, in this paper, I argue that access to various forms of capital also influence transnational changes. Um, and that if relatives of migrants in the origin areas have access to other forms of capital, they will not require remittances from the migrants. And that in many cases, it is because they don't have access to other forms of capital, that is why they invest in migration. And then migration is expected to yield results, thereby remittances. So remittances can be seen as part of um, capital formation and accumulation. In the same breath, if, if the migrant in the destination country um, doesn't have access to capital he or she can draw on. That migrant can rely on his or her networks in the origin country, and that could be the form of reversal resources where they receive assistance from home. And I'll go into empirical House later, but I just want to put this um, across. So that, like I said, one form of manifestation of origin capital is reverse remittances where they receive assistance from home. And this is very crucial for vulnerable migrants because it helps them to show to solve crucial problems that they might have. Um, in looking at this, I look at Ghanaian migrants in the UK and their relatives in Ghana. Ghana has a long history of migration to the UK, which dates back to pre-colonial times. And there are anecdotal evidence that Ashanti princes, so Ashanti is one of the ethnic groups in Ghana, they were seven years. You know, certain places were being sent to the UK for education, for example. But during the colonial period, the immigration to the UK was limited to the elite. Um, so these were people who migrated to before education, for example, and then those who migrated to protest against the colonial government and call for a more inclusive form of governance. And then the colonial government also sponsored people to go to, to come to the UK for training so they can help with the administration of the colonial states under the indirect rule. After independence in 1957, many of those who had migrated to the UK returned to the country on account that the country was being born and was prospering. Um, however, from the mid-1960s, political instability, social and economic instability meant that many of those who had migrated to, the, to Ghana or who had returned to Ghana left because things had taken a turn for the worse. This also meant that Ghanaian migration had become more diversified. So people from all walks of life were looking for better conditions of, of life. Many of them migrated to other African countries like Nigeria, Botswana, before migrating onwards to, um, to Europe, including the UK. So Nigeria, with its newly acquired oil money and manpower, so many Ghanaians moved to Nigeria um, to work. But when the economics and political conditions in that country also took a turn for the worse, many Ghanaians were deported. Over a, hundred, over a million Ghanaians were deported between 1980, 
three and then eight to five. But some say this was also in retaliation to the fact that the Ghanaian government in 1969 deported Nigerians when the economic of the country was was very terrible. So um, Ghanaians draw on their own economic resources to be able to migrate. But then those who are not able to draw on their own social draw on social networks that they have, the long history of migration to the UK also means that um, potential migrants have already established networks there. So migration, they can draw on these networks that they have and that their migration is facilitated in that regard. Um, Ghanaians form, according to COSA, according to COSA, it's called the Ghanaians form is in fact among the new African diaspora. Um, and Ghanaians can be considered a relatively well-established group in the UK. Second, third generations have been born. Older generations have um, gone back to Ghana. Um, the 2011 census in the UK takes the number of Ghanaian-born residents in England and Wales at 93,000. And this number could be substantially higher, considering that there are lots of many irregular migrants um, as well. So the composition of Ghanaian migrants in the UK um, includes migrants in high and low-skilled migration um, from diverse socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds. Um, Vasta and Kandiligi in 2010 revealed that a blend of high low-skilled migrants um, working in various sectors of the UK economy, especially the informal sector, and then also spent in 2005, analyzing the London Labour Survey, shows that 32% of greater migrant Ghanaians were in managerial, professional, or associated professional jobs, and the occupation of the remaining 68% um, ranges from administrative skilled trades through to low and then um, low skilled and unskilled work. Um, by way of data collection, I started collecting my data here in Oxfordshire in a predominantly German <laughs> church in Oxfordshire. Um, I met the pastor of the church and introduced myself and told him what my research was about. And he was happy for me to talk to members of his congregation. But I didn't start interviewing right away. I attended his church judiciously. And then I was a part of the ushering team, catering team before I started the interview. So by the time I started the interview, I wasn't just a student who needed data, but I had become say, a sister in Christ or a fellow church member who needed help. So through referrals, I was able to speak to cadet in Oxford, in London, in Milton Keynes, Northampton, and then Manchester. And then I spoke to their relatives in Ghana as well. I spent three months in Ghana to their relatives in the Greater Accra region, which is where the capital is. So many of their relatives reside in the Greater Accra region. And a lot of them, so in the Ashanti region as well, a lot of them hail from the Ashanti region, as in the Western region, East East, and then the Central region. So I developed four typologies of transnational exchanges between migrants and their relatives, and this is based on their social demographic characteristics their socioeconomic positions, conditions of life in the UK, and conditions of life of their relatives back home, um, history of migration, and of times they've traveled, um, do they receive remittances from whom and why, and whether they also receive um, reverse remittances or um, transnational exchanges from the origin country to the destination country. So I will just go into the various typologies and give examples each of the um, 
that people are interviewing. So the first group, I'm calling them elite migrants, put their elite families in Ghana. But elite migrants and elite families, like say they're part of the ruling class, um, they have special level of education, for example. They grew up in wealthy residential areas in Ghana, and their relatives continue to live in these areas. They've had multiple travels, they live comfortably in the UK. They have strong social capital, and um, I say capitals that get social capital that gets results. Um, they receive resources from their relatives in Ghana in order to be able to migrate. But once they have migrated, in terms of economic exchanges, they have never sent remittances to Ghana. Um, they have never sent remittances to Ghana, and what they say is because their relatives back home are okay. They don't need for them to send remittances. Um, so let me give an example of this lady I met. So I met her in Milton Keynes. And before I start the interviews, I start from the premise of, do you receive remittances from Ghana? And that's because we can go into this into details in the Q&A. Because receiving reverse remittances is seen as shameful. And if you're in migrant and you're not sending remittances home, you should definitely not be receiving reverse remittances. So by starting from, do you send items to Ghana? They are more comfortable. And then we have a discussion. But with this lady, even in her email exchanges, she was like, if I'm interested in reverse in remittances that she sends to Ghana, she has nothing to say because she's never sent remittances to Ghana, but she has received transfers from home. So if I'm interested in that, we can have a conversation. So I went to Motikin, she picked me up, and then we went home. And she grew up in Ghana. Her father was a former diplomat who subsequently became head of state. Um, she grew up in both residential areas, and then she went to study for a degree in law and economics. Um, during long vacations, she travels. She travels <coughs> in long breaks, and she traveled all over the world, including London. And on one such trips, she met a gentleman, they fell in love, and then they got married. Um, and the plan was for her to migrate around that time. But around that time, something unfortunate happened. Um, her parents were involved in a terrible accident, and her father passed away and her mother was seriously injured. So she didn't want to migrate in the end. She stayed for her father's funeral and wanted to nurse her mother back to life. But the rest of the family was like, you're married, you have to go where your husband is. So in the end, she decided to marry. And she, she decided to join her husband in the UK. And she says she did that, not necessarily because of the pressure, even though that had an effect, but also because it made sense. She had just finished university. She's done her national service, which is a mandatory one-year service to the Ghanaian state that everybody has to do. And so she didn't have a job at the time, but her husband had a job in the UK. And so he could support us. It makes sense that she might So she came to the UK, and she started looking for a job. And what struck me about this woman's narrative is the fact that Speaking to other Ghanaians as well, when they would settle, you know, they would take any job because the kind of job they are looking for, they are not getting. This woman didn't do that. She and her point was that her father did not put her through school to earn a degree in law and economics to become a cashier in the supermarket, and that if she took such a job, her father would turn in his grave. So she was like, not until she gets the kind of job she's looking for, she's not going to work in the end because she forced her qualification and titles her to a job that matches her qualification. So um, she held out. And she was able to do that because she can. She has a husband who can support her. She has relatives in Ghana who can support her as well. So in the end, she was like, you know, and I decided to do my master's degree. Not because 
I needed a master's degree, but I feel that is the only way I can get a job that I can be proud of. So she enrolled her master's degree, and then when she was about finishing, she um, started a family. She took four years out of, you know, she took four years away, and then she finally applied for a job. But she got a very good job. But it was a very demanding job that was taking her away from home. So she decided that she wants to spend more time with her children. And so she had a conversation with her mother that she wanted to start her own business in the UK. And her mother thought it was a fantastic idea. So now the issue was why you need to get money from to start this business. She had some amount of money saved. And so she needed to top up. And she was only to go to the banks, for example, because that you, you pay interest on the loan, or they might not give her in the end, or they would require that she does a little business plan, which she was unwilling to do. But her mother was willing to help her. So together with a family friend, she was able to raise about £50,000 from the UK to start her business. So the business was a clothing recycling business, where she goes to shops on the high street and charity shops she buys out of season clothes, sells them to Ghana to sell. She made very good money and she was able to pay all the family uh, friend, but she hasn't repaid her mother. And her point was that, oh, but she's my mother, and that's the grandchildren are in payment, so she's not going to pay her mother. Of course, when she's visiting Ghana, the odd gifts here and there, she buys and sends her mother, but these are sort of like tokens of appreciation, not necessarily remittances to solve a particular need that relatives of migrants have, as has been portrayed in, in the literature. Um, so that's elite migrants. So then the next group I'm calling um, self-made migrants and then the poor families in Ghana. Self-made in the sense that they come from relatively poorer families in Ghana and that they have migrated to the UK through education or entrepreneurship. They have become more comfortable in the UK, but that has not necessarily translated to their relatives in Ghana, so they are responsible for them. So this is like the classic case of sending remittances home. So these migrants are responsible for their relatives back home. So then I spoke to this gentleman, um, James, who migrated to the UK. He was a primary school teacher in a public sector in Ghana, and that doesn't pay a lot, so he wanted a better life for himself and his family in the end. So he migrated to the UK to pursue a master's degree. Um, but this was the early 2000s, so you can apply for a two-year working visa, which you can renew. And then finally, he got a job as a supervisor. He, as a manager, sorry, as a manager in a care home. And he, it was a comfortable job, he really liked his job, and so he started his family here. He is comfortable in the UK, he's taking out a mortgage, he's taking out his relatives, but he still supports his relatives back home, because it's like if he doesn't support them, they'll be in serious trouble. So he's sort of like the breadwinner. And the interesting thing about these people, or this group of migrants and their relatives, is that they each recognize their positions. Um, the relatives recognize that the migrant is their breadwinner, so they try not to do anything to upset him. So in Jim's situation, for example, he's putting up a building in Kumasi, which is where he's from, an eight-bedroom eight house. And so his family is responsible for um, making sure that the building you know, is progressing. And so anything he asks them to do, they do it. And they were telling me that if for anything, they can't make sure the plumber does something that they explain to him so that he doesn't get upset and cut off you know, um, the supply of remittances because if that happens, they really don't know what would happen to them. Um, so that the next group are vulnerable migrants with some families back home. They are vulnerable in the sense that they migrated to the UK with a plan, 
but things haven't gone accordingly. So they have become regular migrants. Um, they are in sort of like their situation in the UK is not desirable in that regard. But these group of migrants do also do not send remittances home. And it is because they don't have remittances to send home. And for them, their relatives in Ghana also do not require for them to, to send remittances because they are okay. Their relatives are part of the growing middle class in Ghana. They have their own businesses, they have social networks and connections to draw upon. Um, so let me use this lady's example to, um, to sort of make it clear. So I met her in um, 2015. She migrated to the UK in 2007 at the insistence of her mother and sister, but at least disagreement from her father. She had just finished secondary school and her father wanted her to go to the Institute of Journalism to become a journalist. Um, but her mother was like, oh, but she migrated, all of her siblings have migrated, why should you remain in Ghana? So she listened to her mother and then she migrated to join her sister who was already here in the UK, who was the nurse, the mental health nurse. And the plan was that she would come to the UK, she would work for a bit, and then she would um, apply to go to school. So when things didn't go according to plan, her sister became pregnant and had children, so she effectively became a nanny, taking care of her sister's children, and her sister wasn't paying her. So because her visa had expired, she was looking for alternative ways of regularizing her stay in the UK. So she met this gentleman who was willing to enter into a marriage arrangement with her for a fee, 13,000 pounds. And she couldn't come up with that money by herself, so she spoke to her sister, and she thought her sister was in a position to help her. But her sister kept coming up with excuses as to why she couldn't the car and now this is happening and don't have money. And so they had a massive disagreement and they fell out. She moved out of the house, she got the place of her own, then she got a job as a cleaner, um, first in St. King's Cross in Pancras, and then she got another job as a cleaner in a gym. But the job she has, it's a very complicated arrangement where she's working with someone else's documents. And this person is supposed to be in France. And so she has to wait for the money to be paid into one account and then transferred into another before she can access the money, for example. So she doesn't always get money to sort herself out. And it is in this instance that she relies on her father back home for assistance. Um, she doesn't want to go to her sister, obviously, because they're filling out. So her father in Ghana is a retired officer of the Ghana Armed Forces who has his own security firm. And so he trains security persons for various companies and organizations in Ghana. And this man was telling me that he doesn't need remittances from her daughter. He's, he's okay. And that if he can do anything to support her, he would. True, she didn't listen to him and then migrated anyway. And I was like, but this is a perfect opportunity to say, I told you so, you should have to just as well come home. But like, that's not what she wants to do. And until she comes to that realization herself, he can't help but support her. And he has the means to do that anyway. Um, so she, this lady, Better to go for her father's assistance. And she's like, but for that, she doesn't know what she would do. And I was asking her, so why is living in the UK? Clearly, you're struggling here. Things have been going to, but why don't you go back home? And her answer was, she was like, she doesn't want to go and work for her father's company. And that she feels like she has a better shot of making it here in the UK than in Ghana. Um, and Social media doesn't help. All of her friends with whom she graduated from the secondary school have gone on to do you know, bigger and better things for themselves. But she's like, at least when I'm in the UK, 
there is this illusion that I'm doing something for myself. When the accounting people do say to her that it's better than she's in London as well. Um, so yeah, so she's in the UK and because she's receiving support from her father, she can sort of sustain her lifestyle. Um, yeah, so then the last group I wanted to talk about are those I have characterized as to say vulnerable women are equally vulnerable relatives back home. Um, like the migrants in the previous group, these migrants have lower capacities to remit because they've also migrated but things are not gone according to plan. But unlike the previous group where they do not have to send remittances because their relatives back home are okay, for this group they still have to send remittances because their families back home are dependent on them. And then compared to relatives back home, they seem to be in a better position because they are, they are in the UK. Um, so I met this gentleman, he came to the UK as part of his sports contingent. Um, football is big, is big in Ghana and the numerous radio stations, private radio stations we have, from time to time send sports correspondents to cover sporting events in Europe, EPL, European Champions League, these are all favorite all for Ukrainians. So his brother is in the States, he was able to get him accreditation to come as part of this sports um, contingent. And the plan was for him to come and join the British Army as a Commonwealth citizen, which you can do as if you're, you know, once you're part of the Commonwealth. And Ghana is part of the Commonwealth. But um, he was able to pass the physical, the physical test. But when he came to the written and oral exams, he had difficulties. So in the end, he didn't make it into the army. And so he was contemplating whether remaining in the UK or going back to Ghana. And then he meets a pastor who says, oh, but I see prophecy, and God has ordained that your destiny is here in the UK, so you should remain in the UK. And the pastor helped him to get a job as a cleaner in one of these, in one of these supermarkets. Um, because he has to still support his relatives back home, and he is in this vulnerable state, he lives very frugally. And his social, socializing is not part of his dictionary. The only form of socializing they do is to go to church and pray for breakthroughs in their immigration status and financial financial status. They share accommodation and apartment with friends so that they can squeeze the extra 50 pounds or the extra 100 pounds and send to their relatives back home. Their relatives family in Tapra de and that neighborhood is very notorious. Even when I was going, the family I was staying was like, oh, but Gerald, don't go in the evening. You know, it's very dangerous. You should go during the daytime. They got someone to accompany me, and then we went. Um, they live in a dilapidated building. Um, Forty minutes later, his father was involved. His mother sells sweets, chewing gums, and toffees on tabletops, etc. And they are grateful for the assistance they receive. And like last week, assistance, they don't know what will happen to them. And what I find interesting about their relationship is um, what Boris this one calls collaborative sciences where stuff like don't ask, don't tell. So they don't really know what his condition of life is in the UK, and they are very comfortable not asking anyway. Um, but in some instances, when migrants are in this vulnerable position and the pressure on them to remit is so strong, it leads to tension in the relationship. So the another gentleman I met was like, his family do not care about him, and that if they did, they wouldn't be bothering him with remittances all the time. Um, and that all they care about is that once he sends it to them, they don't even call to find out how he's doing. And his point was that 
And so I thought he'd tell me back home, and the response of that, I shouldn't mind him, and that he likes complaining too much. What does he want them to do? They can't carry him on their heads, really. But they tried their best to check up on him, but he's just, you know, always complaining that, that they don't. But in some instances, when the pressure becomes too much, relatives, migrants cut off communication ties with their relatives. Um, and this was the case for this other gentleman. Man I met. He migrated to the UK in 1986, a long time, time ago. He's now, he's now a big um, But at the time when he was deciding whether to stay in the UK or not, um, it was very difficult for him. He comes from a poor background. His family were farm laborers. And he was able to go through school on scholarships because he was very smart and intelligent. So government scholarships, mission scholarships, he went to a very good secondary school. And then he made it to the university. But this was the 80s, universities were closed down to one strike or the other. So he wasn't able to go to university then. And he decided to apply to work in a mining company, Ashanti Goldfield. So he, through that, he was able to get scholarship to come to the UK to pursue a degree in mining engineering, which he took up. The scholarship money was very generous, it was good, so he was able to support his family back home. But when he was, when he was about finishing, he got wind of discriminatory practices at his place of work, so he didn't want to go and be a part of that. So he decided that he wasn't going to go to Ghana, he would stay in the UK. And so he had to find his feet, he had to find a job, and he didn't have the scholarship money had stopped coming, he didn't have income to stay with friends. But the letters, this was the, well, early 90s, late 80s, letters were coming in, but your father was sick, your sister is sending letters, and it's like he didn't have to give. Where was he going to get the money or the assistance from? So then he just cut all ties with their relatives for months and they didn't hear from them. So he only renewed ties with them when he secured a job and then he had some form of, um, some form of, some form of, um, um, so, yeah, so by way of conclusion, um, the diversity of migrants and their relatives makes it possible to be diverse patterns of transnational exchange between them and their relatives. Not all migrants are the same, and it's imperative to make these distinctions when analyzing cross border activity between migrants and their relatives. Migrants with resources whose relatives are also well endowed with various forms of capital do not send them remittances. Even when they do, it is not necessarily um, out of need, as has been reported by other, other scholars. They are tokens of appreciation to demonstrate love and affection. Um, respondents who were able to acquire material wealth after migration were able to assist their relatives back home who were in dire economic straits. These relatives were reliant on the migrants for their daily bread. Because the relationship was skewed with total dependence on the migrant for sustenance, relatives were apprehensive that the migrants must, might stop sending them remittances. And to prevent this situation from becoming a reality, migrants should perform appreciation for the migrants and do all of his bidding. Um, migrants in precarious situations cannot always rely on their poor ethics in their destination country for assistance. Um, in as much as social networks in destination in the destination country facilitate migration, they also have undermining propensities. When this happens, we're not rely on their relatives in Ghana to <coughs> have the work without the resources to assist them. Data reveals that these migrants will not send remittances home because they have lower capacities to remit. Others in precarious situations 
However, I have to send them to school because compared to their relatives in Canada, they are in seemingly better socioeconomic position. So able to do this, these respondents be frugally spending money on to experiment so that they can support their relatives at home. So I'll leave it here for now. Thank you. Thank you.